0: We're going to jump right in this morning. We are continuing our series uh, through the Gospel of Luke. We're in a section called In the Public Eye. This is a section where Jesus launches onto the public scene and is now making his his teaching and presence and miracles and message available to the wider world, the general public. He spent most of his time up in the region of Galilee. And this morning, uh, Luke, as he's been teaching us so far about Jesus, who he is, and the mission that he has come to achieve, and the power and authority that he possesses to achieve it, this morning, Luke will shift his focus... From Jesus towards us, towards the followers of Jesus, towards what it means to really follow Jesus. And the question he'll be asking is, do you really want to be a disciple? Are you really up for what it takes to call yourself one who is committed to Christ and his kingdom and his mission in this world? Luke wants us to understand what it really means to be a follower of of Jesus, And to, to do this, to, to sort of let us know, this is what a follower of Jesus looks like. This is what is required. This is what will be asked of you if you decide to follow Jesus. Instead of just giving us a list, instead of just kind of listing out the requirements, instead, Luke tells us a story. He gives us an example of one of the most sold-out disciples of Jesus, maybe of all time. And he says, let's take a look at how this guy got started following Jesus. And how Jesus, right from the very beginning, lays the ground rules out. You see, one thing I love about Jesus is he never pulls punches. We don't serve a God who sort of tries to reel us in by kind of softening the truth or giving us uh, partial realities. Right from the very beginning, Jesus is very upfront with people when he says, This is what it means to be one of my disciples, to follow me. We're going to see that in our story today. Luke chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, pull them out, open to Luke 5. If you are using one of the Bibles in the pew racks, we're going to be on page, I think, 1019. Yeah, so flip to 1019, Luke chapter 5. Our topic today, we're talking about what it takes to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, right at the the top here, I just want to remind you that this is not the first time Peter has met Jesus. Sometimes in the scriptures we have this idea that Jesus just sort of shows up on the scene, meets people and says, come follow me. And they drop their lives and follow. And all they know of Jesus is this one conversation and this one interaction. And we have this idea, this kind of false idea, I believe, that that is great faith. Actually, friends, I think that's just crazy. And it's not actually really how it ever happens in scripture. Peter has a lot of familiarity with Jesus up to this point. This is not their first encounter. Actually, Peter has been hearing from Jesus for quite some time now. He has heard Jesus teach on a number of occasions. He has discussed Jesus with his friends, co-workers, uh, certainly with his brother. He has seen Jesus, we can assume, perform numerous miracles, healings. Peter lived in the town that was Jesus' home base, the town of Capernaum. And so we know of at least from the Gospel of Luke alone one miracle that Peter has witnessed. Because last week, who does Jesus heal? Yeah, he heals Peter's mother-in-law. Like P- Peter has an in-family healing relationship with Jesus. So he knows who Jesus is. He's very aware of Jesus. And yet, at this point in the story, according to Luke, Peter still seems to be someone observing Jesus from a distance. Maybe he's he's still investigating Jesus. Maybe he's still checking out this mysterious rabbi from Nazareth. Maybe he's sort of watching, calculating, discerning. Maybe he's bought in. Maybe on some level he's for Jesus. He's a fan of Jesus. He might even be a believer or a follower on some level. But what we do know is this. He has not yet fully surrendered his life to Christ. Peter has not yet fully stepped out in faith and said, I am a follower, I am a disciple, I am aligned with, I have allegiance to Jesus of Nazareth. That has not happened yet. And so today, Jesus will call him to this new place, this new place of commitment, and as he does, he will show him what it means, what it looks like, what it requires to be a fully committed follower. Now right off the gate here, Luke sets the scene for us. Jesus is preaching along the western shore, of the Sea of Galilee, a body of water that actually goes by three different names, kind of like different cities or places will have a variety of names that different people call them. This sea is sometimes referred to as Sea of Galilee, sometimes as the Sea of Tiberias, other times as the Lake of Gennesaret. Luke chooses Lake of Gennesaret, probably, most likely, to describe a little bit more specifically where exactly is on this particular day. Remember, Luke, he's into details. He calls out details for a reason. Um, So Jesus is teaching on the shore, probably south of Capernaum, near this city, uh, this small, small fishing village called Gennesaret. And the crowd, gathering to Jesus, come to hear Jesus, gets so big that they can no longer hear him, and Jesus is being forced back. And so what Jesus decides to do is look for a better venue. And it just so happens that along the coastline here, scholars tell us that in Jesus' day, there would have been a number of very sharp, small inlets where if you sat on a boat in the water in the middle of the inlet, the surrounding hillside would have formed almost a perfect amphitheater so that the crowd could have stood on the hills around the boat, on the shore and they could have heard Jesus teach without him having to even shout it was almost as if they had like an amplification system a microphone, a natural microphone of some kind but Jesus could have arranged it so that so that all these people could actually hear what he was saying and so that's what Jesus is looking to do and yet as is so often the case with Jesus he has an ulterior Motive. While he's doing one thing, he's actually working something out as well. He has got in mind something much more than just working out a place to talk. Luke tells us that it just so happens that where Jesus is, there are a group of fishermen nearby on the shore. These, these fishermen are not there to hear Jesus. They are not standing around, pressing in like the crowd is. They are not there to hear his words. What does Luke say these fishermen are doing while Jesus is teaching? They're what? Yeah, they're washing their nets. Luke, again, gives a lot of detail here for for very specific reason. First of all, he tells us there are two boats. He makes note of that. He says there are actually two boats on the shore, and he says there's this group of fishermen, not just a few, but kind of like a whole crew of them, and they are washing their nets. Now, there there's three kinds of fishing that was done in the first century on the Sea of Galilee. Three different kinds of fishing in Jesus' day. First, there was line fishing. Uh, this is the kind of fishing that we generally think of when we think about fishing. You had a line, you tossed it into the water, you're trying to catch a fish... Um, Most often, one at a time. When you're line fishing, you're you're just looking to catch one. You're hoping to catch one. In Matthew 17, Jesus actually says to Peter, in another instance, he says, go to the lake and cast out your line. He's telling Peter to do some line fishing. And in this particular instance, Peter goes, he does some line fishing, he catches a fish, and the fish has what in its mouth? A coin. Remember this. And then so Jesus uses this kind of... Strange reality as a teaching opportunity to teach Peter about some things um, around the kingdom. But there's line fishing. We see that as an example of line fishing in the scriptures. So, line fishing, next there was one man net casting. One man net casting was generally done from shore. What a person would do is they would have a small circular net. On the perimeter of that net were a, a bunch of weights. And the fishermen would walk the shallows searching for schools of fish. And when they spotted one, they would cast the net out into the water. Hopefully, over the school of fish, the weights would come down around and they would haul in a catch of fish. One man net casting. Another time, Jesus interacts with his disciples. We're told that they are along the Sea of Galilee, and it says the disciples were casting a net into the lake. So in this instance, they were doing this one-man net casting, another example of fishing in the Scriptures. And then there's the third and kind of final way that fishing was done in Jesus' day. This final way was called drag net fishing. Dragnet fishing was professional fishing. Dragnet fishing was done out in the deep water. It involved a a series of larger nets that were all fastened together into one giant rectangle. Scholars tell us that the size of a dragnet that fishermen would use would often be the size of a football field. So these are enormous nets, huge nets. They could be as long as a quarter mile. And what the fishermen would do is they would line one edge of this giant rectangular net with corks to keep it afloat and they would put weights on the other end. They would string the net in between two boats and then they would move apart to let down the nets, creating sort of this wall of net in the water, out in the deep water. And then the boats would sail in a circle and create this giant net fishing pen. And as the net kind of came in and got smaller, one of the fishermen sometimes would dive in and pull net fish out of the nets, and that's how they would do fishing on a larger scale, or they would drag the nets in. So as we read this story, understanding that there's a crew of fishermen, that there are two boats on the shore, what kind of fishing can we assume has been going on just prior to this incident that we read about here today? Yeah, we're looking at the drag net fishing today, aren't we? There's been some drag net fishing happening. And we need to understand this Because when Luke points out to us that these fishermen are on the shore washing their nets, sometimes I think we get this idea that they're like at the dock and they've got their power hose and they're just sort of spraying off their little fishing net and it's like no big deal it was a fun day out on the lake with their kids, you know, and they had some bobbers and some worms. No! This is not at all the scene. These were massive nets. These nets represented their livelihood. These nets were very important. Professional fishermen like these guys would spend all night fishing, and then they would spend all morning and into the afternoon preparing, cleaning, maintaining, washing off their nets. Those nets represented life for them. And so when Jesus comes along, finds these fishermen cleaning off their nets, and he hops into one of their boats at the end of their long night of fishing and says, Hey, guys. You know, looking for someone to take me out into the lake. Would you just you know, stop what you're doing and, and float me out into the middle of this inlet for a minute? It's not the most convenient time. These guys are in the middle of something critical. They're in the middle of doing a job. They are working. They are busy. They have got their own stuff going on. Now, this is where Jesus teaches Peter... The very first lesson about what it means to be a fully committed follower. And, and before I tell you what it is, I'm just going to warn you that for some of you this may come off as a kind of trivial thing. But let me assure you of this. It's not. This is actually, I believe, an extremely significant truth. Something that's painfully relevant to as 21st century American Christians. And for many in this room, this might just be the most important thing I will say all morning, this truth that I'm about to sort of unveil for you from this from this text. Are you ready for it? I've kind of built it up now. Now you're really waiting for something huge. Um, being a fully committed follower of Jesus is not about convenience. Being a fully committed follower of Jesus is not about your convenience. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. Your convenience is not even a concern of God's in the very least. He cares not at all about keeping your life convenient. If that sounds harsh or a little brash, good. It is supposed to. I'm trying to get your attention with this. I want you to imagine this for a moment with me, if you would. I want you to imagine if this scene had played out differently. I want you to imagine if Jesus had come over to Peter and the guys and they are working, they are engaged, they are doing the task at hand, the thing they had, you know, scheduled to do for that day. And if Jesus had come over and said, hey, guys, I need one of you to sort of stop what you're doing, I need you to, like, take your boat out again for me. And if Peter in that moment had pulled out his smartphone and said, um, one second, Jesus, oh, you know what, I'd love to, but it looks like my calendar says I got dinner with the wife at some friends tonight and I have just enough time to wash the nets up get home for a shower the wife hates it when I smell like fish for dinner and I have just enough time to do that and so it's not going to really work for me today but looking ahead I'm thinking Monday could work you know Monday actually you know what would be great for me Monday between about 1 and 2.45 or so can we squeeze it in there could totally do a boat ride at that point can I just type you in here Jesus Now, if Peter had responded in that way, we'd been blown away because they didn't have smartphones back then. And we'd be thinking, how did he get a smartphone? No, if Peter had responded in that sort of a way, here's what we would say. We would say, Peter, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Do you know who is making this request of you? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And yet, friends, I believe this is how so many of us follow Jesus so much of the time in our lives. We follow Jesus mostly when it's convenient, only when it really works for us. Our relationship with God is built on and around what is convenient for me. We serve. If and when it's convenient we we connect with god when we have time that works out that's convenient we give when it doesn't require sacrifice and it's convenient we show and share and demonstrate the love of god when it fits nicely into our schedules and i know this is true of you because it's true of me we love convenience Convenience is doesn't it just feel awesome? This happens to you sometimes. I know it does. When an opportunity arises for you to do something Jesus-y, kind of like that reflects a Christian, kind of godlike, and it just fits perfectly into your schedule for that day. And so you can do it without any inconvenience. It doesn't really bug you or bump anything else on your calendar, and you can do it and kind of get that little God check that makes you feel so good and less guilty about your life. You're like, yes. I served God and it cost me nothing. Awesome. That was great. Couldn't have worked out any better. Friends, that is not Jesus' picture of what following him looks like. You see, instead of establishing Jesus and his priorities for our lives as our highest priority, we so often follow him only when he works with our priorities. This is honestly why we never have enough people for really great ministries around here. Do you know how many people come to this church on a Sunday morning? On any given Sunday, and a lot of people skip. I know you guys are skippers sometimes. A lot of people so on any given Sunday, we have about a thousand people that come to church here. And yet we are always searching and begging and scraping for people to go downstairs or and teach our kids about Jesus and volunteer in our children's ministry. We're always on the lookout for people, for more people, because we're always running behind on people who will give up a week and go out and serve at Royal Family Kids Camp. Do the very thing that the Bible itself says in God's eyes is pure and blameless religion. Work with kids who've got difficult parenting situations. We're always, we're always scrimping when it comes to finding folks to serve the neediest in our community at the Jesus table. Or reach out in our schools and be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. We're always searching and scraping. Why? Why do we have so such a hard time finding people to do the very stuff that God says we as Christ followers should do? I'll tell you why. It's not convenient to do it. It takes sacrifice and effort and it means you have to rearrange stuff on your calendars. And we, as 21st century American Christians, we love to serve God. When? It's convenient. And I'll tell you what. I'll tell you why God, I think, loathes convenience. I'll tell you why He loves to inconvenience His people. Here's why. Commitment shines when convenience is challenged. You want to find out how committed you are? You want to see how committed somebody else is? Throw some inconvenience into the equation and see what happens. Friends, you know this is true, because there are things and there are people that you will make a priority, that you will find time for, that you will make sure you get to no matter what. Nothing can stop you. Even when it's not convenient, you're committed. And then there are people and things that as soon as it gets hard and as soon as it gets challenging and as soon as there's a barrier, you're out. It's just not going to work. It is not convenient. Again, the convenience or lack thereof reveals your commitment. And I guess when you think about it that way, let me ask you this question. Where is God on your list? Where does He fall on your convenience commitment list? Where is, where is serving on your list? Do you just do it when it's convenient, or do you do it because you're committed? Where is connecting with the body of Christ? Where does being a part of your church family fit on the convenience, commitment scale in your world? Are you committed, or do you just do what's convenient? See, right away in this story... Jesus asked Peter to do something that's not convenient. And I think it's his way of saying, Peter, there's a decision to make because if you want to commit to following me, this is how it's going to be. Not your schedule. Not your convenience. Not your priorities. Mine. Being a fully committed follower of Jesus is not about convenience. Convenience. Next, Jesus shows Peter how being a fully committed follower is choosing God's will over our will, even when we don't understand. When he had finished speaking, he, Jesus, said to Simon, put out into deep water. They're going out to fish in the deep water, right? Doing that dragnet fishing. And let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. Because Peter is an expert fisherman. He knows that the best fishing is done at night. He knows that fishing in the middle of the day when the fish can see the nets coming is really a futile endeavor. He knows that they've been trying all night with no luck and that the fish just aren't biting today. And yet, what is his response in this moment? But because you say so. I want that to be a life verse for my kids. I'm thinking about like stenciling this verse in my kitchen on the wall. But because you say so, Dad, I will clean my room. It's just a slight paraphrase from the biblical narrative. I think it could work. Friends, if you follow Jesus, sometimes God will ask you to do things that do not make sense to you. This is just part of the drill. It's like part of what it means to be a Christ follower. You don't get it. He does... He wins. He's the authority. He calls the shots. You do it anyway. Why? Because he says so. Just this past winter, I had a chance to take my kids um, skiing for the first time. Actually, my daughter went skiing and my son went snowboarding and so they're both like on skis, on a snowboard. How many, how many skiers in here? Downhill skiers? How many snowboarders? Okay, skiers versus snowboarders. Raise them high. Skiers, snowboarders. Snowboarders. Man, the skiers won both services. So, anyway, in both sports, one thing I realized as I was trying to give my kids some tips on how to successfully navigate the hill was that you actually have to lean forward. You have to lean downhill to be successful and to be good at at both things, at skiing and snowboarding. When you ski, you're actually supposed to not have your weight on the back of your boots. You're supposed to lean your weight towards the front of your boots. But I'll tell you what, when you're first learning... That is one of the most counterintuitive things to be told because you're looking at this hill. You're standing on these two slippery skis. You can't control them. You know you're going down the hill and all you want to do is lean back. And your dad keeps saying, lean forward, lean forward. And you're thinking, dad, I'm not dumb. Right? And my son's doing the same thing. He's leaning back on this snowboard, you know. I'm thinking, you have to put weight on the front foot. What's funny about that is that even though everything in your mind is saying, i should lean back i should lean back actually if you decide to lean forward lean into the hill you can turn easier you have more control you have less chance of falling and getting hurt than you do if you lean back but what you have to do is you have to learn to not trust your own thoughts your own instincts you have to learn to trust the one who is teaching you and this is how it is when we fully commit to commit to follow god friends so often In our lives, God will say, lean forward, follow me, do it my way. I know it does not make sense, but please, will you trust me? Now, for some of us, the problem quite often isn't that we won't do what God is saying. I mean, most of us in this room read this story and we think, well, if Jesus shows up and tells me to do something, even if it doesn't make any sense at all, if Jesus says it, I'll do it, right? Most of us would say that. But I guess the problem is that it's hard to live a because-you-say-so life with God if you never actually take time to listen to what God is saying. Let me ask you this, church. Are you connected with Jesus in a way that He even has the chance to ask you to do something or direct your life in a way that goes beyond your logic? Or... If you're honest with yourself, do you just live your life directed by your own understanding and then ask God to bless it? You see, there's two ways to live a life with God. You can say, Lord, where are you leading? I want to go. I'm listening. You lead. I'll follow. There's another way to live your life. You say, God, I'm going here and I'd really like for you to get on board with my plans. Both of those are disguised as Christianity. Both of those are disguised as being a disciple of Jesus. One of them is not. One of them is not following Jesus at all. You see, because-you-say-so life requires a life of intentionally connecting with God such that He might have the opportunity to direct your life and your actions and your paths in a way that does not make sense to you. But to even receive that command, to even have the chance of obedience, you have to hear Him first. Are you connected with God in that way? One of the things that we're doing in the next few months as a church staff is that we're setting some goals. Um, We're setting some goals for ourselves. We've been doing that as a team. Um, Some of our goals are, are sort of around like working here at the church and ministry goals and job performance. But every single staff member is setting one goal this summer. One goal... On how we will intentionally connect with and hear from God over the next three months of summer. And I think that's so vitally important because one thing I've learned about myself and I've observed in other people is that sometimes when summer comes and vacation hits and schedules and routines get kind of thrown off, what happens is God gets put on the back shelf and we actually end up taking a vacation from God all summer, not intentionally, not because we choose to do that, it just happens. And then you find yourself in the fall going, man, I should really connect with God. I haven't like, spent any time with Him for, wow, three months. I do not want that for myself. I do not want that for our staff. I do not want that for our church. Do not disconnect yourself from the voice of God for the summer. Maybe some of you need to join us. Maybe some of you need to decide, you know what, I'm going to join the staff and I'm just going to set one goal. Just that one challenge, just determine one way that this summer I'm going to intentionally connect with and listen and hear from God so that I can stay dialed into His plans for my life over the summer. Did you know that it is possible to spend time and talk to God even in Oregon when the sun is shining? I haven't lived here for a summer yet, but I'm pretty confident of that truth. Friends, being a fully committed follower means God's will over my will even when I don't understand. Let God guide your paths. Verse 6. When they had done so, that's the disciples now, that's these guys, these fishermen. When they had let down the nets, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink you ever exaggerate to make a point you ever like when you're talking to someone you really want to make a point and so you exaggerate like you're looking at me like i'm not a liar pastor dave no i'm not saying you lie i'm saying like you exaggerate like you you really are trying to drive a point home and you're like saying man we went to this campsite and there were so many mosquitoes there were a billion mosquitoes at this campsite well there probably weren't a billion but there were a lot and you really want the person you understand what i'm saying are you with me at all Okay, thank you. Um, Yeah, sometimes we just exaggerate to make a point. The the best example I could think um, for this was I do this with my kids sometimes. I I don't know about your kids, but sometimes my kids uh, get a little... Well, they get a little more enthusiastic about their hurts and pains than maybe they need to. So they'll come into the room in tears as if someone has probably broken their leg or had a body part, you know... Uh, cut off in some way and, and it comes to find out after all the tears and all the drama that their sister poked them. Does this, I mean, do you ever have this with kids? Like, the, you, PJ said a mean word to me. Well, she's a four-year-old. Like, suck it up. It's not a problem right here. You know, so this happens with my kids sometimes. They'll be like, oh, I bumped my elbow and you would think like major surgery is coming soon. And so what I'll do as a solution to this problem every now and then is that I'll just sort of exaggerate back to make a point i'll say something like oh no your elbow honey call the ambulance get a doctor this is real bad we have to head to the hospital you know dax bumped his elbow actually it looks awful get a knife we're gonna have to amputate that's right i use sarcasm in my parenting it's the only thing that gets me through sometimes and the point is this When I do that, even my kids understand that the exaggeration makes the point. They are way overreacting, and my overreaction highlights their overreaction. And this is kind of what Jesus does here. He exaggerates this miracle. I mean, he drops this miracle on them that is so over the top that it is virtually impossible for them to grasp the point that he is making. I mean... Check out the contrast here. It's just beautiful the way Luke tells the story. Luke's already told us that these very same men in these very same boats worked by their own strength all night. And how many fish did they catch? None, not a zip, zilch. And yet here, now in broad daylight, when they finally yield to the authority and direction of Jesus, they catch so many fish that their nets and their boats can't even hold them all. And these aren't small boats friends these are like 26 foot boats these boats we learn in other places in the new testament are large enough to carry at least 13 men because Jesus and all 12 disciples go sailing in them from time to time and now these two giant boats are so full with fish that they actually begin to sink picture it i'm just pictured the scene here picture the absolute mayhem of this moment picture these fish flopping around spilling out over the over the sides these fishermen struggling and wrestling and throwing fish into these boats trying to keep the boats afloat trying to get them inshore trying not to not to let the fish get away and then best of all in the midst of the madness just picture jesus standing in the center of it all watching the chaos observing this moment with a smile on his face and a look in his eye that when Peter sees it says and now you know Peter and now you've gotten just a small glimpse of what can happen if you will abandon yourself and follow me you see on your own by your own strength you can do nothing but if I'm calling the shots what can happen it can go so far beyond your wildest dreams beyond even your comprehension friends being a fully committed follower of Jesus means God wants to do things in and through your life that you can't even imagine on your own do not let uncertainty do not let inconvenience rob you of the boats full of fish God has down the line for you and and this point this this awesomely exaggerated miracle that Jesus drops on these guys here. Not that the miracle was exaggerated, it actually happened. It's just that Jesus kind of outdoes himself here. He could have just probably given him 40 fish and made his point, but he goes with like 640. So, uh, this exaggerated miracle is not lost on Peter. Listen to his response, verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. You see, in this miracle, all of a sudden Peter sees who he's dealing with. In this moment, maybe for the first time, he starts to understand that there is something different about Jesus. He is not just a teacher. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just some rabbi. He is actually the one who possesses the power and holiness of God himself. Earlier in the passage, in verse 5, you'll notice that Peter addresses and refers to Jesus as what? He calls him master. He calls him master. It's a a word that's only used in Luke. And it's a very respectful term. And it means someone who has respect and authority in society. But here, now, Jesus is no longer master. Now, Jesus is Lord, Kyrios, one who has authority and power and sovereignty, not just in a general sense, but over one personally. You see, something has now changed between Peter and Jesus in this moment. You see, what Peter understands about this whole miracle, what he understands about this whole event, is that that the fish in the boat are not about the fish in the boat. It's not what this is about. It's not about, look how cool Jesus is. He can make fish appear. No, this says something very deep about who Jesus is and then, because of who Jesus is, who Peter is in relationship to him. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, one thing here about being a sinful person, being a sinner, this confession that, Jesus, or that Peter makes, this is not Peter saying... Go away from me, Lord, I've sinned. Go away from me, Lord, I doubted you. Go away from me, Lord, I did a few bad things this week. God, you know, on Monday I said a cuss word, and on Tuesday I lost my temper, and then Wednesday there were those lustful, greedy thoughts. No, that's not what's happening here. This is Peter understanding how entirely and completely and deeply sinful he is when he stands next to the holiness of God found in Jesus. You see, one of the things Luke is doing here is that he's showing us how Peter, like Isaiah and all the great followers God has used over the ages, how Peter understands his unworthiness before a holy God. See, all great followers, all great leaders in the Christian life and in the the church understand that compared to God, they are nothing. That God's holiness just transcends. And Luke is, what Luke is doing, he's looking ahead. He's looking ahead to, to the book of Acts and to the early church. And he's looking to Peter, who will be leading at that point. And what he's telling the early Christians is this. Even with all this guy's faults, even with all his mess-ups and mistakes and blunders and betrayals, this guy understands something so central that the power of this movement comes from God not from Him. You see, it never has, is, or will be about the giftedness or abilities of Peter. God can use sinners. God actually chooses to employ deeply sinful, messed up people for great acts of service. But the key is this. Fully committed followers of Jesus always remember whose holiness empowers their life. And it's not theirs. How about you? Are you maintaining a healthy awareness of who is responsible for the success and blessing in your life? Does God get all the glory? I mean, do you look at the boats of fish that come your way and think to yourself, "Man, thank you, Lord, you have done it again." Or do you say to yourself, "You know, I've always been pretty smart." Man, I, it really pays to be faithful. This is what happens when you're as talented and gifted as I am. I mean, do you give yourself the credit or do you give all the glory to God because you understand who you are in relationship to Him? Fully committed followers of Jesus never look to their own giftedness, talent, intelligence, faithfulness as their source of success. They always remember whose holiness empowers their life. Then Jesus said to Simon... Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. Friends, I'll, I'll wrap this up here. This is the last but not the least point. Fully committed followers of Jesus understand there is a new calling on their lives that everything else revolves around. Fully committed followers of Jesus understand there is a new calling on their lives that everything else revolves revolves around. You see, friend, this is not actually a passage about how if you really want to be committed to Jesus, you will leave your job and you will move to Africa to follow Him. This is not about quitting your job. The only reason you should quit your job to follow God is if God tells you to quit your job to follow Him. Most of the time, God does not say, quit your job to follow me. But He does have some things in store for you. He does want some things for you. And here's what he wants most of all. He wants everything in your life to revolve around this priority. Joining with him in advancing his kingdom, his mission in this world. Drawing people to him through the love and grace of Christ in his death and resurrection. Everything in your life is actually about that one thing. At home... It's about that one thing. At work, it's about that one thing. When you're out doing recreation, it's really just about that one thing. Everything you do, everything you are, is about joining Jesus in His mission to advance His kingdom of good news and grace and mercy and salvation in this world. There is no place where you get a time-out break from that. It all revolves around that. And that may involve you quitting your job. That may involve you just going to your job with a whole new attitude. You see, Luke closes this story with the word that kind of sums it all up. What does being a fully committed follower require? What does God want from your life? How much does God expect and desire of you? How much do you have to surrender? The answer is very clear. It's just one word in that very last sentence. Everything. Everything. What does God want from his followers? Everything. How much of your life does God want you to surrender? All of it. These guys have just had the most prosperous fishing day of their entire lives and yet they walk away. They just lay it down. They leave behind their boats and their nets and their business. Why? Because that's what God asks. And what God wants is always the most important thing. Is that you today? Is that you today with Jesus? Or, or, have you given him everything? Are you a disciple? Are you a follower? Are you one who has declared allegiance with Jesus? And if so, have you given Him it all? Or are you still holding out? Do you still have some things tucked back here on on another shelf that you're saying, God, you can have all this stuff, but this one relationship, this one area of my life, this one habit that that I have, um, this one thing that I'm engaging in, this one thing that I've decided I will not do, I am not letting you in on that. You see... Jesus from the very beginning right off the bat says that's not how it works with me. If you want to follow me I require it all and I am coming for it all. There's this amazing verse in in, uh, the book of Hebrews it says since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a kingdom consuming fire. You ever been in a fire? You ever watch like a forest fire rip through an area? You know what's left when it kind of cruises through? Nothing. Because fire is jealous for everything it can get its fiery little tongue on, right? That's how our God is. He is a consuming fire. He wants all of you. And here's the wonderful thing about following Jesus. Here's the wonderful thing about this call to come and give everything for Jesus. He says, come and give everything for me because before you do, you need to know that I've already given everything for you. You can trust me with your life because I gave my life for you. Our God can be trusted with all that we have and all that we are because He has given us all of Him. Where are you at with Jesus today? Have you given him at all? Are you holding out because you don't understand? Are you holding out because it's not convenience? Are you missing out on the, the boats full of, of fish and blessing that are down the road for you if you would just turn over some other areas in your life? Consider that this morning as we come to the table. This table reminds us of everything God has given to us. But before you come, I just want you to ask yourself this question. God, is there any place in my life I still need to give to you? Is there anything I still need to turn over and say, you are Lord, you are sovereign, you are in control even of this. And I choose to trust you because of who you are and what you did. When you're ready, come to the table, grab the bread and the cup, take them back to your seats, hold on to them. We're going to receive them together. just a moment Father thank you for this morning for fishing stories that aren't just fishing stories but our stories about life with you reveal to us Lord this morning some of us will sit here and we won't we don't know where those places are we we aren't even aware that we are holding things back and so God by the power of your spirit reveal in us reveal to us the places where we can more fully surrender to you everything That's our prayer. In Christ's name, amen.